Ernest, what's up? Y'all know I'm big on doing your research, sharing your research, and giving credit to where you found the research. But I always get asked the same question. Where do I start with the research? And the answer is easy. It's our sponsor, Yahoo Finance. Whether I'm tracking the daily movement of my favorite companies, doing technical analysis with their easy-to-use charting platform, or checking balance sheets, Yahoo Finance makes something very complex simplified. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or you're looking for extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. You could actually securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including your 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors. And it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You heard me, yahoofinance.com. Don't wait, don't hesitate. I use it. You should go over and start using it now. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals 24. That's Chime.com goals 24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Ernest, what's going on? Traditional universities are outdated and don't teach you how to become an entrepreneur. They just teach you how to become an employee. You go to school for four years and you leave with nothing but debt. But here at EYL University, our curriculum is much different. Our university teaches you real-world skills that you can use to gain financial freedom right away. In traditional universities, you learn from professors that have never did what they teach, and they teach you how to become an employee. At our university, we use instructors that are currently successful in a specific field that they teach, and they teach you how to become an entrepreneur. For a limited time only, you can join EYL University for 25% off of the annual membership. Learn about stocks, credit, real estate, crypto, and more. Go to EYLUniversity.com right now and sign up to become an earner. Don't wait, don't hesitate, head over there now. My graduates from my school being Forbes, bag drop. Bag drop. <laughs> <laughs> mic drop, bag drop. Bag drop. All right, guys, welcome back. EYL, Silicon Valley edition. Billionaire edition. The third time. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Very rare. So shout out to Mark Cuban and Mike Novogratz. Yes. Those are the two previous billionaires that we've had on, but this is a much younger situation, much younger gentlemen. So, yeah. And you might be familiar with his company. Perhaps. <laughs> Perhaps. So Vlad Tenev, 
I say your last name correctly? You did. Oh, thank you. I get very nervous about that. Because people, butch, people butch, <laughs> up, put, butch my name all the time, so I'm very conscious about that. So um, thank you for having us. If you guys aren't familiar, CEO of Robinhood, Robinhood revolutionized the game when it comes to investing. Mm-hmm. Um, brought millions of investors into the fold that previously were not investing. Yeah, I think the number is like 20, 23 million. Right now, new like, new investors or total on total the platform. Investors. But over the pandemic, the number was like ridiculous. Yeah, million. Like it was ridiculous. every day. Somebody comes up to me and asks me to look at their portfolio, and at least eighty percent of the time, when they pull it up, it's Robinhood. It's good to hear. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Glad we're we're serving people. Yes, yeah, sure. and and recently went public in July, um, with a current valuation somewhere around forty billion dollars, uh, give or take. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is going to be an interesting conversation. We're going to go a deep dive in true EYL fashion. Um, so first and foremost, thank you for having us. We appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Yes, yes. Um, all right. So let's get into this. You are a Bulgarian immigrant. I know both of your parents worked at the World Bank. So coming to America, going to Stanford University, um, which is, you know, one of the premier universities in the world, yeah. especially when it comes to tech, probably the number one place for people that are looking at uh, do tech. I know you had a couple of other businesses previously. Um, you had a business started in 2010, but it started in 2011. Kronos, I think, was the last business that you had. But what made you have the idea and start Robinhood in 2013? Like, where did that come from? Yeah, well, it, it, was, uh, it was definitely a journey, so I would say when I got to Stanford, even though Stanford was a university that you associate with entrepreneurship, um, I wasn't really, I didn't come from a particularly entrepreneurial family. Um, I was interested in science and math growing up. So I thought I would be a professor. So I went to Stanford to study physics mm-hmm. and then I transitioned even more kind of theoretical than physics into math where you literally have a chalkboard and, and a couch, and that's what you work with, right? And then I actually went to grad school um, after graduating. UCLA? UCLA. I did, I did grad school. I was in a, a math PhD program that I ended up dropping out of. Mm. But my sort of, I didn't really know what I was going to do with my career, but kind of my default path was to be a math professor. It's pretty much what you do with, with a math degree. Because I, I really enjoyed... Um, what appealed to me was creating something, which in the case of being a mathematician would be, you know, like a new theory or something that hopefully hundreds of years from now into the future, if you're lucky, they would teach to high schoolers or other students. So um, I went there, you know, expecting to be a research mathematician. I met my co-founder who I started all these other companies with, and he was also on the same path, started physics and then transitioned to math. And then um, 2008, when we graduated um, and I went to grad school and he got a job in the financial industry, kind of on a whim, um, the stock market crashed, right? So you had Lehman Brothers going belly up um, and the entire uh, the entire market changed. And so uh, probably somewhat foolishly if if, it sounds kind of silly to say it now but at the time that seemed like the the best time to start a financial company 
right when the financial system <laughs> yeah. crashed. Everybody starting over. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. it was, in a way, leveling the playing field. I was about to say level the playing field, for sure. It was a changing of the guard, right? Like, the era of... I don't know if you guys um, have ever seen old movies of... You know, traders, people trading on the trading floor. Yeah. Uh, you know, probably trading trading places like Wall Street. Like Wall, Street. <laughs> Wall Street trading places. One one of my favorites. Is that, that's old. Eighties <laughs> yeah, from old. the eighties. Okay. Um, they they did do a a sequel. I yeah, think, yeah, yeah. A couple of years ago, but uh, yeah, basically you see those scenes of like the trading pit and the people with the with the paper tickets flying around and. Uh, that really changed in the 2000s, especially after 2000 to 2008. There were no more people with paper tickets, no more manual trading. Everything went completely electronic. And so our previous two businesses, we kind of created in the wake of that. So we saw an opportunity as markets were going electronic to, uh, to start a software company that basically built the technology and the software to support fully automated trading um, and so that's what Kronos was. Mm. It was basically a B2B, a business-to-business enterprise software company. We built the technology and we licensed it to financial institutions mm-hmm. um, who couldn't really compete. You know, they, were, they wanted to get into fully automated trading, but they were still using kind of the, the people on the phones or, or the desks. And so we found a little bit of a niche there. And then as we were building that business and, and growing it and scaling it, Beiju and I both kind of recognized that, you know, while we saw a path to making making it a big business and growing it to millions in revenue, um, we just weren't that passionate about about the end the end result of running a big enterprise business. And the way we describe it is, you know, our customers were already rich. I mean, they were institutions, mm-hmm. they had money, and we were kind of <clears throat> helping them adapt to this new environment, giving them better technology. But what we really were after was building a consumer product okay. and actually improving the lives of, of everyday people. Uh, and, you know, we started thinking like 20 years from now, what would we still want to be doing if we, you know, got back from, from work after a really hard day? What would make us proud of, of what we were delivering to people? And um, through kind of building our previous company, Kronos, we realized how everything worked, how, you know, a trade would be processed, how it would be cleared and settled and all of like the, the regulatory stuff around that. And then um, we kind of asked ourselves, well, if these institutional customers that we have are doing millions of trades and we have the technology to support that, what's to say that regular people can't access that either and why are regular people still paying ten dollars every time they they want to make an investment i remember those days i i, I always tell the story when I, I opened a scott trade account and it was like seven dollars every trade yeah and i'm like man wasn't that long ago yeah yeah so the what the first company was solaris is that am i saying that right yeah so it, it, when I'm, i was doing the research and it feels like we took the the trading part of solaris we had the institutional side and we said okay I said we because I'm like wearing this together, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys uh, saw what you could make. You were inside of the institutional side saying like, we've already, these people are already rich and you birthed what you're, what you're known for now. Is that, is that kind of how it worked? 
Well, we we had we saw what our customers were able to do, uh-huh. what a trade looked like for an institution, the cost structure behind it, which was essentially zero. You know, they were placing some of these some of these customers are placing you know billions of dollars in dollar value of trades per day, you know, millions of trades per day, and they couldn't do that at uh, if it was seven dollars a trade, right? So the cost structure was fundamentally different. So yeah, then then it's natural. And, you know, I remember at the time also watching um, watching uh, all of Steve Jobs' keynotes for the Apple events. And uh, he, had, he had rolled out the iPad, the first iPad at around that time. And this was like while we were in the thick of like building out our enterprise product, um, we sort of saw, uh, we were wa- I still remember watching that keynote. And just thinking like how awesome it is to to roll out a consumer product and to actually have, you know, everyday people wanting what you're building mm-hmm. and to just just serve them rather than serving businesses and, and having to do enterprise sales. It's just fundamentally different. So we we wanted to do that and then we saw an opportunity. And when we got the idea for it's just the, the simple value proposition, right? Um paying $0 per transaction instead of paying $7 and kind of making it mobile because nobody had done that really in the past. Right. All the other brokerages that allowed you to to invest on mobile, they basically took their web pages and kind of shrunk them down. They were still complicated. They, were, they weren't really built for mobile. Right. You couldn't sign up on mobile. You still needed your computer. Um, so we saw uh, when we got that idea, we knew it was a big idea and we knew that, you know, if we just brought it to market that uh, it had to work, assuming we executed well. It was a brilliant idea and it's something that I'm surprised nobody thought about because it's like, that's what I, when I think of Robinhood, I think of two things, user interface. It's extremely Mm user-friendly, even on the option side, which can be complicated. You guys made it extremely user-friendly and, um, it doesn't cost anything, which now yeah. everybody kind of has adopted that model. But if you're not familiar with it, it wasn't always the case. Like that wasn't always the standard. Like you, like you said, it used to be like seven dollars yeah. per trade or five dollars per trade or something like that. And that adds up over the course of time. So those two key elements were like the foundation, the user interface, and having it free. Yeah. Well, I think there were a couple of other things there. I think the user interface and being mobile first were important. Uh, I think the cost structure is fundamentally important. And if you think about it. If you are someone that's just getting started, hasn't invested before, and you have a hundred dollars, you know it's kind of a it's it's a big step to say I'll put a thousand dollars towards something if you're just getting started. That's kind of a big commitment. But ten dollars, a hundred dollars, you could theoretically start with that. But if you're paying seven dollars per transaction, that was just not possible. Mm-hmm. Like it would, the fees would eat into every trade. And it would be impossible to diversify as well. So if you want a portfolio with seven different stocks, you know, that's $70 or $50 if you wanted to make those seven transactions. So it was actually impossible um, or very, very difficult to get started with small amounts of money. (laughs) But um, I think the other thing also was you look more broadly and now people talk about fintech as kind of a space, as a it's a big industry, you know, lots of fintech companies, crypto is now becoming a, a bigger and bigger thing. 
But when we got started, people weren't really starting financial companies very much. I mean, you look at Google Trends. uh, (laughs) Sometimes I do this. If you look up fintech, there was like nothing up until 2015, right? And then you've you've seen a a steady increase. uh, And now, you know, tons of fintech companies across insurance, across spending, saving, you know, people, there's a lot of, a lot of innovation and investors didn't used to invest in it. I mean, when we were first getting started and we tell people we wanted to create a regulated brokerage, that would scare a lot of people off. It'd be like, we haven't seen that before. You know, we're funding consumer apps and you know you don't want to you don't want to be regulated that's what they tell us you definitely don't want to be regulated because that's just going to be really hard you're not going to be able to innovate and you know the only regulated companies are these companies that are 40 years old and have you know billion dollar marketing budgets so i think just the the decision to build a regulated brokerage at the time was a it was kind of contrarian right Mm -hmm. we were like we're not going to stay away from this we know that you know to do that is going to be hard, and because it's hard, not that many people have done it recently. Huh. Um, and you know, we think we think there's something there, and we kind of understood that process too of what it meant to be regulated and operating in a regulated industry from our previous experience, and we knew that it wasn't as scary as you know people people initially thought. You just kind of had to figure it out and work through it like any other any other problem or constraint. Let me, let me ask you this. As far as a lot of people that listen to our platform are aspiring entrepreneurs or young, just getting started. So the number one hurdle is always funding. So, yeah. you know, we see where Robinhood is now, obviously, you know, like I said, $40 billion valuation, but it didn't always start like that. So can you walk us through the process of funding? Did you self-fund? Did you get money from family? I'm assuming angel investors came in at some point, but yeah, can you kind of just walk us through that? Yeah. So there were a couple of different, uh, we, we had a long period where we had just raised some seed money. So, uh, that started in like 2012, 2013, and we probably raised in aggregate about $3 million in seed capital. And that was probably the hardest, um, outside investors, outside investors. Yeah. Lots of them, lots of small investors. Um, we were actually, you can find uh, Robin Hood on angel list, in 2012 or, or 2013. We were on the wrong sites. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, talk to a lot of people. A lot of people were skeptical, um, but there were some people that made uh, early bets into the business and kind of, uh, kind of took that bet. So um, Index Ventures invested in our seed round and then a bunch of subsequent rounds too. So that was uh, Jan Hammer who uh, led the seed round led the A round as well, and is still on our board through IPO. Uh, we had Google Ventures. We had Tim Draper uh, from Draper Fisher Jerviston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah lots, of, uh, lots of angel investors. So you got, big, you got big names out the gate. Yeah. Um, well, Because Draper, big, that's, that's a big name. Yeah, so he came towards the end of our seed round, but yeah, it was still very what, early. What, what was that? So what was that process like? Because I'm thinking generationally. At the time, you're in your 20s. Yeah, tell them about a product that's revolutionary to our generation for sure. It's simplistic in its design, but these guys are traditionalists. So what was that like? In a sense, traditionalists because they've been in the financial industry for years, never seen anything like this. I feel like when we talk about technology and anything that's new, people are rigid. 
and they're, yeah. they're hesitant toward it. So what was that like even explaining it to get the seed funded? I mean, I think that um, the people that got it, there were some people that got very excited about it. And, you know, I think they, they looked at the quality of the team and that we were really passionate and, um, and, and basically, you know, wanted to give it a shot right away. Then there's people that needed a little bit of convincing and, you know, they talked through the, the business model and they really had to understand it. And then there's people, the majority of people that just sort of like wrote it off for one reason or another. Either they looked at the competitors and said, there hasn't been a new brokerage in a long time. You'll never make money. You'll never get customers. Uh, you two mathematicians, we don't believe you can build a consumer product that's good. So there's a lot of reasons why I think a rational person would say no. I mean, fintech as a category didn't really exist back then either. Uh, but yeah, there were people that got excited and, and really passionate angel investors that supported us and gave us the funding. And I think another thing that made it hard is because it's so regulated, the traditional um, lean startup methodology where you kind of like test out the messaging and test out whether the value prop of the product resonates with customers uh, that didn't really work. So we had to actually get all the regulatory approvals and the license before we could start marketing uh, a brokerage product because it was so regulated. So it's a little bit of a of a chicken and egg problem because we needed the funding to get the license, <laughs> but you know people would be hesitant to give you funding if they thought that there was a risk that you wouldn't get the license to be a broker. So. At the end of the day, you know, we had to talk to a lot of people. I think I said on a podcast, I mean, this is obviously an order of magnitude, uh, rough approximation, but we probably talked to 75 investors or more to, to raise the $3 million. Yeah, it's like uh, Ryan said, Ryan Wilson, 99 no's before we got our yes. Yeah. Well, how, how important was the network? Obviously, going to Stanford, there's no other better place to go. So were a lot yeah. of those relationships built from... Stanford, or I mean, your parents worked for the World Bank too. So did did you have? Where did you get those relationships to even approach angel investors? We had to build them from scratch because even though we had gone to Stanford, we were kind of um, we were like in the math department, and people don't start companies yeah. out of the math department. <laughs> Here comes the math team again. <laughs> yeah, so uh, neither yeah. Beju or I spent a lot of time. You know, we never did internships at Google or Facebook. We didn't. You know go to the CS department. We took some CS classes, but it wasn't like, you know, nowadays, I think there's like a, a machine at Stanford where, you know, if you're in the CS department, which right now is the most, most popular one, but back when, back when I was there, it was before the current kind of like startup frenzy. CS, computer science? Computer science, yeah. So people were majoring, when I was at Stanford, the number one major was human biology, which is basically pre-med. Mm -hmm. And then there were a lot of people that were interested in like investment banking and they would go into finance. And I think computer science was probably third or fourth. So it was growing, but you know, nowadays Stanford, number one. I think yeah. is, is very integrated with like venture capital and they even have like startup accelerators where you could apply and, uh, and they can help you out. But you know, when you're a mathematician, you're not, you're not really, you're not really <laughs> spending time doing any of that. So we had to build the networks from scratch. And, you know, uh, we were in New York, actually, for our first two companies. And at that time, there was no 
there was not a lot of venture capital in New York. I mean, now it's probably a little bit better, but in the early 2010s, late 2000s, there were maybe like a handful of, of investors in New York. Um, and so we moved back to California to, to start this business. And so we were really starting from scratch. You know, we're coming to a new place and didn't really have the luxury of, uh, of the Stanford network. And that's why, you know, we, we hustled. We met investors. We, we tried to, like, go two degrees of separation. So we would ask friends if they had any friends that were, that were investors. We went on AngelList. AngelList you know, is a website with, that lists all angel investors. Yeah, it's right? a platform. It's a platform. Like a you investors. can create, um, for earlier stage companies generally, you can create a profile uh, as a startup. And then they help you connect with angel investors and uh, I think there's also recruiting. So some people look for look for jobs, and you can you can hire a little bit out of AngelList as well. Now you said something about having the team, a strong team. Is the team the network that you found at Stanford, or these are people that we just kind of along the journey said, you know what, you're great at that. We'll find you here. How how did you build the team? Yeah, it's actually very unconventional. So because we didn't have because we weren't really in computer science. Um, I couldn't call up my friends that were that were computer science majors and get them to join, right? So we did it in a sense very traditionally. We would get a booth at the career fair. So it was actually, you know, a bunch of the big companies, but you could you could get a booth if you're an alumni and you're incorporated. I think it was like $700 and we would collect resumes and actually, you know, Beju and I would would man the booths ourselves with our t-shirts and hand out swag and a lot of our really, really great initial employees were just from the Stanford Career Fair. And people, they skipped career day all the time. Yeah. yeah. Viable lesson. <laughs> you never know. You never know. know. Let me ask you this. There's always a way to, I think if, you, if you're scrappy enough, there's a way to, to, to make it happen. I think not a lot of people would think about going straight to the career fair. But for us, because we never had internships at these companies, right. our only experience to like getting a job was the career fair. So it was sort of like the first thing that came to mind. Oh, of course, that's how we would want to hire people. Let's just figure out how to how to get one of those booths. I got my first job at a career fair. Did you? Yeah, it was how to. They was like interviewing you in the booth. It was for like this education expo, and I was sitting there. You get an interview, and they'll tell you to come back to the school. I bombed the first one. And I was sitting waiting for my friend to do the next one. And I was like, I need a job. And the guy was like, you need a job? Come talk to me. And I, that's how I got my job. That's how people are getting hired as teachers these days. <laughs> should be very I disturbed. Was 15 years ago. If you're listening. New York City, shout out to children, them. You should be very disturbed if they go to, if they go to public school. Um, so let me ask you this. It seems like this, this happened very quickly. So at what point? Do you get the app up and running and actually have a product that people are actually downloading and starting to use? Yeah, good question. It does seem the way I, when I talk about it here, it, it seems like it happens very quickly, but it, it took years, right? Like we first got the idea. So we moved back to California from New York uh, during the Kronos days in 2011, end of 2011. And uh, we get the idea for Robin Hood, February 2012. Who comes up with the name? Actually, my my wife came up with the name. Great name. Great my name. girlfriend at the time, now wife, and she was trying to explain to her friends what I what I was doing, and um, she'd be like, "Oh, well, you know, my boyfriend Vlad, he's in finance, 
And then they'd kind of groan. They'd be like, you know, <laughs> think I was some kind of investment banker or something. And then she'd say, no, no, no. You know, they're kind of the Robin Hood of finance. They're trying to build something new for, for the little guy. And so then um, you, Beju and I had a couple of ideas for the name. And we, we asked some of our employees. But um, both of us just kind of liked Robin Hood. We, we thought that it stood for something, you know, something very powerful, a powerful idea and, um, you know, I think uh, Jeff Bezos says that the name is probably like 3% of it, but sometimes that 3% is the, the difference between doing very well and, and not. So pretty happy with, <laughs> with how it ended up. And I do think that, you know, we're trying very, very hard to stay true to Your mission what the name statement. stands for. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay. So. And what what year does Robin Hood actually get up and running and, and out to the public? Yeah, so we get the idea 2012. Um, we spend a lot of time getting the licenses. We launch a wait list December of 2013. And then the app hits the App Store in beta December of 2014. So about a year after the wait list and maybe uh, a year and a half, two years after we get the idea. Two and a half years, actually. And then public launch March of 2015. So, at what point do you guys start to market? Because it feels like I never, I didn't really remember seeing like Robin Hood commercials. It's just one of these things that everybody just had Robin Hood overnight. So, like, what was the yeah. marketing plan for Robin Hood to just become as popular as it had become? Well, so um, it, it's largely been word of mouth uh, from from the very beginning. And in December of 2013, what we launched was a wait list. So um, basically, you could sign up for the wait list. We would let you know when we could onboard you, when we could onboard you onto the product. And the wait list uh, kind of gives you early access to the product. So um, the wait list itself, I think you could think of as marketing, although the idea was we wanted to kind of create... Um, a slow and steady way to onboard people in the order that they were most passionate about the product. So get the people that are most excited to, to try it access first. And that way we could get high quality feedback. Um, and yes, of course, um, we did just like interviews. So CNBC pretty early on Bloomberg, those kinds of places wanted to interview us because it was a, it was a simple to understand idea right commission free trading people kind of knew that trades cost seven dollars so how are these how are these uh these people doing it for free and uh you know we were able to get close to a million people on the wait list in in a year wow. which was a lot of pre-launch i mean for a financial product probably among the the biggest pre-launch wait lists in history at the time and then once it comes out it's just wildfire just start spreading like wildfire yes yeah, so we knew when the wait list was uh was live that people were interested in it um so we kind of had our we kind of had the wind at our back since the the wait list launch and then uh when it when it went live i mean it was it was pretty consistent i mean we grew pretty consistently um people people were interested in the idea and then that's when kind of the iteration engine started so we would um, i think one of the one of the interesting things you learn is that in a consumer product you get a lot of customer feedback and so you listen to the feedback and 
we really built a process from the very beginning of you know going to people's houses in some cases watching them use the product having them come to our office seeing you know what they were struggling with what their pain points were and then um and then kind of reasoning from first principles to figure out how to solve them so a bunch of our early products like Robinhood Instant, Robinhood Gold, um, they solved customer pain points. And we would see as soon as we rolled them out that, you know, we'd grow a little bit faster, the business would improve. And then, you know, that really built the product development process that we have today. When So when you built the app and you had the design team, were you very super intentional about saying, I want to make this appealing to a younger audience? Because... If you look at your demographics now, right, 18 to 40, is that's the sweet spot for Robinhood yeah. users. So were you thinking, all right, we're going to start younger with, with a younger audience. Here's how we'll do it. This interface, it's user-friendly. It'll be appealing to the younger audience. Is that, was that the initial thought when building the interface? I think the initial thought was that we would target a younger customer. And um, it, wasn't, it wasn't necessarily because, um, you know, we didn't want a, a target target people that you know were more experienced or older it's just that as we thought about it um we thought that there were people that were underserved and it was people with less money and people that you know didn't already have a brokerage account and also juxtapose that with like people who are mobile savvy Mm -hmm. and um you know they were mobile savvy and were likely to be early adopters of of new financial products. So you kind of like zero into to younger demographic uh, in any case. And not to mention we were building, we were building it ourselves, right? And we were in our twenties at the time. So we wanted to build something that we could use mm-hmm. and could appeal to us and also could appeal to, you know, to a broader demographic. So let me ask you this because there's always hiccups and there's always problems. But I think it's important that people actually know the truth. So obviously everybody heard about the GameStop situation. Yeah. Um, and you, you, you spoke about that, but our audience might not have been on those platforms that you've actually articulated what happened. So can you explain, because we actually got caught, not with Robinhood, another brokerage. brokerage. We, won't, we won't name, <laughs> but we got, we got caught with that um, where we put a put. Yeah. On GameStop. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, you did? Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. The, and the put went crazy. And in one day, we were up upwards of 40,000. 500%. Yeah. And we tried to sell it and it, it, we couldn't sell it. And then we ended up losing money on it, long story short. So I sympathize with people that couldn't sell their GameStop positions because it just so happens that we were one of those people. Yeah. Like I said, it wasn't Robin Hood. It was another. It was another. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> so for a lot of people that, you know, just got into investing. They w- they wasn't sure exactly what happened. Can you just kind of explain what happened when you had to halt trading? I believe, right? You halted selling and buying a Robin of GameStop for a day or two. Just the um, yeah, we had to to halt uh, opening positions. So it was uh, it was any any position that sort of increased risk. So for example, since we don't allow shorting. Um, it was uh, you, you couldn't buy the meme stocks mm-hmm. because you know if we had allowed shorting, it would be you couldn't open short positions as well. But that's why um, it was the buy side, and then in options, uh, since you guys mentioned that yeah. opening up options contracts, whether they be on the long side or the short side, was um, 
was not allowed either. But uh, you could always, throughout the process, you could always close out your existing positions. So uh, we we didn't we didn't disallow you know selling a stock if you had it or selling a put or a call or just closing buy it. out. You couldn't open new positions okay. for the time period that that we restricted the the trading. And you know, really, what it was was um, I call it a five sigma event. So I think one in three point five million. I mean, we'd never seen anything like that before. Yeah, which was basically. Um, you combine social media and the financial markets, the idea of, uh, you know, people getting together and banding together all to buy a handful of stocks, uh, you know, GameStop, AMC, and, and a few others. And yeah, these people um, essentially made the purchasing of the stocks go viral on social media. And so it went viral in social media, but then sort of spilled over into the into the financial markets because people would download brokerage apps. You know, Robinhood went to number one on the app store during yeah, that time yeah, yeah, period yeah. overall, which is very rare for a, a financial product because You're number fifteen right now. So that's in finance, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. This was number one overall, yeah, overall ahead yeah. of like TikTok and Snapchat. Instagram, everything. Um, and I think the markets just uh, what ended up happening was the markets weren't built for that. Too much stress being put on the, on the yeah. markets. Yeah. So the collateral requirements, the deposit requirements went uh, went up. And a lot of this is covered. I had to give a testimony to the House Financial Services yeah, Committee. I read, I read, I read, I read I some. Yeah. Your hair was a little shorter then. It was a little bit. I had to clean it up, um, but I've, I've let it grow out since then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I got a lot of a lot of uh, criticism for my haircut. So you, you, you yes. So you said I was like, I don't, I don't know who Lord Valiant is. <laughs> I had to look that up, Prince Valiant or something. So in front of Congress, you said it, it wasn't really a, you had enough to, to, for capital, but it was it was not enough liquidity for the immediate collateral. Well, it was it was basically. Um, you know the, the the requirements were growing exponentially, so certainly we had enough to meet our capital call that Thursday, um, and we met our our deposit requirements. But if you're number one on the app store, it's it's sort of uh, how far could it continue? Yeah. yeah. So you know, Robinhood Securities, our clearing firm, a, a lot of other brokers ended up with the same issue. Mm-hmm. Um, bunch of other brokers essentially had to had to come up with the same thing um but uh since we were since we were vertically integrated and we had our own clearing firm um it was all inside Robinhood so Robinhood Securities had to make the decision to PCO the the stocks and the options for all these things and then we went out and raised billions of dollars to try to unrestrict them. I'm going I'm to ask you about that, but before I ask you about this, I saw this is crazy. I haven't. I used to be a financial advisor, and I haven't heard this term in a long time. But when I was reading it, the T plus two timeline, yeah, and um, you were saying that that's problematic. Um, why, well, hey, can you explain what that is for people, and why why is that something that needs to be changed? I know you, you said that that should be something that should be done immediately, and not yeah, two days. So, yeah, this is a very sort of uh, arcane thing, but um, I'll, try to, I'll try to explain it in as easy terms as possible. So, uh, yeah, imagine Robinhood is like an ice cream store, right? Instead of selling stocks, we, we sell people ice cream. 
and you know you're a customer you want your ice cream you go to robin hood and um the current financial market situation would be basically as if um we take your money we put it in a safe for two days um then we give you the ice cream uh but then we take uh we take our corporate money right our corporate cash and you know give it to our suppliers so you know you think we just take your cash give you your ice cream and it's very simple like that but we actually have to lock up the customer cash uh just in case something happens with the bank transaction, like it's it, it's reversed to control for, you know, what's called the liquidity risk and the market risk. Um, and then we have to use our corporate cash to fund the purchases. And, you know, the the corporate cash is is finite. So people ask a lot of times, why can't, you know, I have my $1,000. Why can't I just use my $1,000 to buy this stock? Well, for the the way that the settlement system works, we have to lock up your cash, keep it safe for two days, and only then um, only then can we use it to give you your stock. And in the interim period, we have to put up our own firm cash. Mm-hmm. So obviously, in a situation where these where the buying activity just goes parabolic, um, there's limits to how much corporate cash we can we can actually provide. And so, what going from T plus two to T plus zero would do is allow us to essentially immediately do that that transaction so we wouldn't have to put up corporate cash for two days we could actually exchange uh exchange the cash and the shares immediately i don't know if the ice cream analogy really helped hopefully (laughs) 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 so i'm interested on your your thoughts about meme stocks because again this is one of the things that are revolutionary right there weren't meme stocks before before we heard about Robinhood, and it was like, okay, well, this is synonymous. Well, this is the easiest place to get it, and yeah. so this is kind of a twofold thing because yes, more people are involved, right? I don't know how many people access. Should I get GameStop? Just randomly, like in the supermarket, people are like, I'm, I'm in GameStop. I'm in GameStop. Yeah, so it does bring more people, but they're newer investors, not always educated in the, in a sense. But the more customers that you have, it does help business. So, what's your thought on the meme stocks? Um, first, and then I thought to myself, since it's kind of become the home of the meme stocks because of the accessibility of how quickly we can get access to the, these positions. Yeah, we've seen AMC, we've seen GameStop, but now you're a publicly traded company. What are your thoughts about like if that happens to Robinhood stock itself? Like, what are your thoughts there? Well, I would say um, if you look at the products that Robinhood rolls out, um, my personal opinion is that. You know, we'd like to encourage long-term habitual investing. It's, you know, over time, compound interest and compounding of returns, as I'm sure you guys mm-hmm. you guys uh, tell your listeners, is a very powerful force. Mm-hmm. Einstein, I think, called it the eighth wonder of the world, yes. you know, compound interest. So just time in the market and time spent um, investing over a long period of time really, really adds up. And so that's why we encourage long-term investing through recurring, through fractional diversification, through fractional shares. And then, of course, education, making sure that, you know, we provide content not just to our customers, but to the broader world through Robinhood Learn, through in-app, through Snacks, and and all of our other properties. So uh, 
I tell people, and it's on our website now, Robinhood's safety first company. That's our top value. Mm, what that means first. is it <laughs> means service line. reliability, <laughs> right? It means uh, education. It means all the safeguards. So, you know, we warn you if a stock that, if, if you're looking at, if a stock you're looking at is leveraged, if it's a leveraged ET, ETF or ETN, if uh, if it's experiencing unusual volatility. And then we provide all of the information and the data uh, that you might need. And of course, on top of that, it is self-directed. So if you want to make a decision to buy into a recent IPO or something because it's, um, you know, popular on social media, you're, you're free to do so. But we do want to make sure you have all the information and that we give you the tools to encourage that long-term habitual wealth building. So you said something that was very interesting. You said it was like one in uh, three million. Yeah, three point five million. Yeah, but being that we're in a new age, and these things can continue to happen now because these Reddit groups and different things of that nature are not going anywhere. Social media is only getting bigger. More and more young people are getting into investing. So, what if this happens on an ongoing basis and it doesn't become a one in three million? What if it becomes a one in ten, one in a hundred? Yeah. What's your what's your plan of action to not have that happen again? Well, I think um, immediately, you know, raising the over three billion certainly helped provide a cushion. Um, but of course, there is some there is always a limit to how much firm cash um, that any broker would hold. So, you know, if a hundred million or a billion people theoretically wanted to buy the same stock at the same time. I don't think the system would be able to handle that to handle that currently. So we would need some some changes to the underlying infrastructure of the markets. Maybe gov- that's where T maybe plus go- government regulation changes a little bit to help in that situation. Well, yeah, I think uh, the industry has already said that they would support faster settlement, mm. which is a big a big thing. So T plus zero, I think, would take a while. That's real time settlement, but. One day settlement gets us about half of the way there. So I think steady improvements, um, steady improvements in uh, in the infrastructure are going to be helpful. Yeah, you you mentioned you you raised three point five billion. That's extremely um, interesting because it's like most of the time people would think that that hurts your business, but you actually raised and you actually got a lot more customers actually after that too. So what was your strategy? Was it like just face it head on, don't run from it? acknowledge what happened and then go to investors and say, this is why we need more money to prevent these things from happening. Well, it was kind of simultaneous, right? We were raising the capital while we were explaining to customers and the broader public, um, what was going on. And yeah, it was sort of like solving any hard problem. You have to just, um, you have to make sure that, uh, you put the right people on it. And we have we have a great team, you know, great folks in operations, engineering. Meanwhile, engineering is trying to keep the the service up and dealing with all of the influx of customers and all the activity. So, you know, everyone was working very, very hard uh, yeah. at, at that time. It was like all hands on deck close no. to 24-7 without a break for, no. for a very long we time. We were just speaking about that. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like we were living it as retail investors, but what was that moment or day or week like for you as the co-founder of this company that has been since we said social media wall street bets has gathered yeah. people and you're like the social media of investing what was, was that day little, like for you 
It was a little stressful. <laughs> you think? <laughs> it was a little stressful. You think imagine. normally that, you know, if you're number one on the app store overall, it's That's sort of like, <laughs> it's a great thing. But um, yeah, it's also, you know, we, we were very cognizant to make sure that we wanted to be there for, for our customers. And, you know, it's uh, on the one hand, having so much activity that, you know, you need to raise additional capital to, to facilitate the trading is a good thing. On the other hand, you know, there was this like, you know, not being able to, um, having to restrict the trading for customers, you know, um, that was disappointing. A lot of customers were disappointed and there were a lot of false narratives. You know, you saw them all over the internet. Mm -hmm. To this day, a lot of them exist, you know, of collusion with hedge funds. And, you know, people, people are, I think really interested in collusion. They like to think that people are colluding. Um, so having to kind of dispel that narrative and say, well, actually we were just like doing what we could to operate within, within the regulatory framework and make sure everything was, was done properly. Um, but yeah, the, despite that, I think, uh, I think the, the false narratives are sometimes so compelling that they just like keep going yeah, people would rather be believe a lot than the truth. It's more entertaining. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let me, I think that's true. Speaking yeah. about that, um, when you when you spoke in front of Congress, I believe one congressman had asked you. They said, "Well, it's free to trade," but they spoke about the sell order flow, with market makers, and yeah. getting a, a piece of the spread. And they were trying to say, like, "Well, it's not really free to trade because the market makers are making money, and it's money every time somebody makes a transaction." So, what do you say to that? Well, well, they're talking about payment for order flow, which is one of the, which is our main source of revenue. And what I would say to that is payment for order flow is not new. I mean, it existed when people were paying seven to $10 per trade as well. The yeah. broker would just make seven to $10. And then in addition, they would make the, yeah, it was an additional cost, the payment for order flow. Yeah. So yes, we do generate revenue, but at the same time, it's never been a better time to be a retail investor and you know it's it's highly regulated it's um it's uh it's it's been regulated for a very long time and basically there's there's rules so a lot of people say you know why don't you send your orders to an exchange why don't you send it to the nasdaq or the nice why are market makers executing the orders and market makers provide competition for the exchanges and there's actually rules that say in order for a market maker to execute your order, they have to actually beat the exchange price or beat it or match it. And so as a customer, generally you're getting a better price through a market maker. Mm -hmm. um, market makers are still for-profit businesses, so they generate revenue. And you can think of payment for order flow as a rev share, a share of the revenue that they make with the broker. So we think it's... it's uh, it's a fantastic model. I mean, it's led to commission-free trading. It's led to the lowest possible cost of trading for consumers out of all developed, uh, out of out of all time, and um, you know, it's led to the U.S. markets being the most vibrant capital markets for retail investors in the world. So, we're uh, you know we, we stand behind the business model a hundred percent, and I think that. People debate it and have been debating it for a long time. 
in large part because it's very complicated to understand and i actually didn't understand it in detail when i started trading i didn't know what it you know when i bought my first stock i didn't really know what a bid ask spread was right. you know there 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 was a process of learning through some of those things so we've been we've been trying to educate people and share information about the revenue stream and uh and you know explain it a little bit so better it's, 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 it's important because it's one of these things where when people are confused then they can think that something is bad or it just automatically yeah. goes negative that's why explaining um is beneficial because i think when, once people have a full understanding of something most people will say okay everybody deserves to make a living this is america like you mm -hmm. can make money yeah but it's it's when like you said when people are confused and i feel like the financial industry for a long time has confused people like you said just the bid to ask spread like all of that stuff if you don't have background knowledge on it it's very confusing and your perception can be swayed in any direction depending on who's telling you the story yeah i think that's true it's the same it's the 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 simple lie and the complex truth again right um when the truth is complex as the financial industry is people um and you know people lie. are also used to financial companies being rent seeking and taking advantage, taking advantage of, of people, of people. Yeah. so they're very they're very leery of that yeah you remember the financial crisis of 2008 and you know the way that that felt right um a lot of people lost their houses a lot of people lost their jobs the government came in and and sort of bailed out a lot of these companies nobody really got punished and there was a lot of distrust i think that lingers from that time period i mean you 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 remember the the occupy wall street protests where people are just a little bit skeptical about whether the old guard financial industry is actually working for them and i i think some of that a lot of that sort of persists to this day yeah so i just want to go back really quick because we talked about bid and ask and so a lot yeah. of people are new to investing and so when they hit, see bid and ask I'll try to explain it like this, like the ask, like if you went car shopping, right? The ask is what they're asking you to pay for it. The bid is what you're willing to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And so when there's a difference in it, that difference, let's say somebody bat pays the market price or the ask price, that difference between the bid is that's what's going to the brokerage. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like, I'm just breaking it well, down. Well, it's actually the bid and the ask. Um, not all of that goes to the brokerage. It's actually split three ways, right? Um, some of it goes to the market maker. Mm -hmm. Some of it goes to the customer, which is what's called price improvement over over the NBBO. And then uh, a small portion goes to the brokerage. And Bloomberg's done, um, Bloomberg Intelligence, I think, recently had an analysis. And the portion going to the brokerage is typically much smaller than the portion going to the customer and to, to the market maker as well. And the customer actually gets the, the bulk of it as price improvement, according to that study. Let me ask you this. You're the first person that we have spoken to that has taken a company public, and you just did it recently. So I have a few questions. Congratulations. Thank you. Oh, yeah, congratulations for sure. Um, okay. So was that always your idea to go public? or what, At what point did you realize, no longer am I going to have a private company. This makes sense to take it to the public markets. Um, I think... I think we realized um, once we got to a certain level of scale, and then once you get to that scale, you realize, oh, this is a capital-intensive business. You know, we have these capital requirements, we have these deposit requirements, and this is, we're growing very quickly. And you know, accessing public markets is just a great source of funding for the business. Um, 
I think it, it was also pretty clear that it was mission aligned and we would like to uh, figure out a way to allow our customers to be shareholders and the self-referential nature of Robinhood, kind of a stock market company going live on the stock market just, just made sense. So I think all, all those things together made it, um, made it sort of the, the reasonable thing to do. But the way we think about it also, it's kind of a, I mean, it's kind of just a, a, a financing event. If you think about it, we already, because we're so regulated, have to share a lot of detail about our revenue and our operations with the public. Um, and so probably the delta between Robinhood being going from private to public and your typical other technology company is is a little bit smaller. Okay. So there there's certainly changes, but a lot of a lot of our activities and revenues were already transparent and shared on a quarterly basis. You know, one of the things that I've heard you speak on and be very proud of is having a large allocation of shares for retail investors was that something that you as a team said you know what we're built for the people we want to have people involved was that part of the thought process when making that decision yeah yeah i think that was that was an easy decision because you look back to our mission democratize finance for all Mm -hmm. and it's really all about giving things that were previously accessible to um relatively few select rich people and making them available to everyone so like the original product commission-free equities trading that aligns with it commission-free options trading very much aligned with it as well things like high yield savings Um, and so when we got to the ipo i think it was clear that hey why not you know rather in addition to kind of taking our own company public Mm -hmm. why don't we try to democratize ipos as well and that's why we launched a new product ipo access which actually launched before our own ipo we launched with uh, a few other a few other companies and then that's really become a mechanism to give retail consumers on equal terms access to ipos as the institutions so they could get in at the ipo price um and you know get get access to those which would have previously been available only to high net worth individuals or institutions or underwriters i want to ask you about that I was going to wait to to later, but since okay. you brought it up, let's talk about that. That's very interesting. Can you explain that a little bit more? So, what 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 exactly? When does it exactly allow people to invest? Like right when it hits the stock market, right before it hits the stock market? Like what's what's the the details on it? Yeah. So typically, um, the IPO allocation happens before it hits the stock market. So, um, the underwriters and the company agree on a listing price. And uh, Robinhood currently acts as what's called a selling group member. So we're allowed to give people a portion of that allocation. Um, we, we give that to the community. So they get in at the IPO price. Typically, that price is set um, the day before the stock actually starts trading. And, uh, and you know, once it's, it's trading, that price, that price is a different price. Yeah, so it it could be like twenty dollars the day before, then thirty five dollars when it actually opens. It could be forty dollars yeah, when it actually yeah. opens, and, it's, and there, there is some risk. Obviously, it's not always going to yeah, be. Yeah, I mean, just lower, but yeah, it could be it could be higher. Yeah, but um, that's great that you're doing that, and um, that's something that I think is really going to 
change the game. I think that's a game changer. It's a game changer yeah, for, sure. for sure. But I want to ask you also: Is there any plans of so we just got into the angel investing world ourselves? Yeah. Um, a good friend of ours, John Henry, shout out to him. He, he got an insurance company named Loop, and nice. uh, yeah. we put some some money into that and a few other companies. So as we're learning more about these things, we realize that. Stock market extremely important. It's yeah, important engine to build wealth. But when you talk about real, real massive returns, it's done more so on the angel side. Like even way before a company even thinks about going public. And there are some platforms, you know, crowdfunding. But the large companies, all star companies, they're not on those crowdfunding platforms. So have you ever thought about finding a way to have regular people? In a crowdfunding type of thing, but being able to form a syndicate to invest in early startup companies. Yeah. So, typically, historically, what's been the the impediment there is just the accreditation requirements. So, um, for a long time, in order to invest in, you know, a hedge fund or venture capital fund or private uh, private company that's non non public, you had to be an accredited investor, which has either a net worth requirement or an income environment requirement for wealthy people. Now, recently, I think it was with the Jobs Act. Yeah, President Obama. Yeah, yeah. there was a Reg A+, which allowed some private companies to allocate some portion per year that they could raise via equity crowdfunding from general public. I think initially it was $50 million, now it's seventy five. So there are mechanisms, still a little bit complicated, Um but I think there there is an opportunity there. I think generally how we think about it at Robinhood is selection is important. People want access to different investable assets. So we started with stocks, then a lot of demand for for options, a lot of demand for cryptos as well has led us uh, led us to offer those on the platform. So I think we'll we'll continue to add um, to add more things. And you know there's. There's lots of different assets out there that mm-hmm. are things that people want to invest in that we don't offer. I, I want. So I want to stay you, tuned. I want to ask you about crypto, but before that, can we just briefly go back to the bringing the company public? What are some difficulties? I just want to give people like a, just a quick overview because not a lot of people are really familiar what it takes to actually take a company public. I know there's regulation, there's yeah. filings, there's you have to have the underwriter that actually underwrites the situation. I, like, I'm going to start the answer for him. Stressful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can you just give people a crash course in taking a company public? Oh, uh, let's see. Um, so one thing that I've I've been told is interesting, but I didn't get to experience is actually going to all of the offices of the different investors and like meeting them in person. So I was kind of in the in the limbo period. You know, COVID is oh, yeah. is very much still a thing, but we ended up traveling to New York. And we wanted to kind of get into the get into the zone as much as possible. So, yeah, it was funny. Rather than doing it at home and completely over Zoom, as uh, as a lot of people did, we went to we flew to New York and did everything in Zoom out of the underwriters' offices. <laughs> so we were in these conference rooms <laughs> up on on Zoom, on Zoom calls. That's uh, crazy. Basically, for like. 10 hours a day. Yeah. Um, Bring my blue tie in. New yeah. meeting. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, it was a lot of work. Uh, it, it took a lot of time. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, it was also uh, when, when all was said and done and, and we priced and we listed and we got it over, 
got it over with. You know, it was it was pretty cool to be there with the team in person, to be in New York where Beju and I got started as entrepreneurs and where I actually arrived as an immigrant to this country yeah. um, when I was five years old. JFK. Yeah, with my aunt, uh, my aunt who was in her early 20s. Um, and then, you know, seeing my parents at the airport. I hadn't seen my dad in, I think, a year and a half at that point. I hadn't seen my mom in six months. So it brought back it brought back those memories and it was just a, a nice little moment along the journey, you know? Um, and a lot of people think, oh, you know, the IPO, that's that's kind of the end, right? That's that's the, the end goal. But it, it didn't feel like that because obviously, um, well, we had earnings a couple weeks later, so getting ready for that. But I just think uh, there's so much left to build, right? Robinhood's still a U.S. company. We're still offering investment products but we don't have ira accounts we we don't have the ability for you to have a individual retirement account so there's even within investing in the u.s there's a lot more that that we have to offer yeah i, I was watching so july what was the day, july that you guys ipo officially july 28th 28th 29th so yeah. when you i think you were supposed to get listed at like 10 o'clock but that it took like maybe till two o'clock before i felt like the, the public was allowed what's happening during that time and as a, I mean, as a retail investor, I'm looking at it like, what's this, the co-founder thing about? Is it underwriting going on? What's happening between the time when you're supposed to IPO on the date and yeah. the time it actually goes public? I think there were just like, uh, yeah, it's still, it's actually not a fully automated process. So there's like shares that are being exchanged and some kind of largely administrative things. But uh, yeah, during that day, that w- that was all sort of the, the accounting, finance, and legal teams, yeah. and you know, my co-founder and I were were at the Nasdaq. Uh, I think it was just like lots and lots of interviews, and then the the opening bell ceremony. Yeah. So, you know, my my understanding is, um, yeah, e- even though I I wasn't in there, that eh, pretty typical to have, especially with a large retail allocation, a lot of different investors for. Yeah, the actual yeah. Facebook took a long time. I felt like I was the watching, actual shares. To I was watching the stock prices go up and up and up, and I'm like, "We're gonna get it at 16. No, it's at 34. Nope, it's gonna open at 36. They do like, that 35. It's exactly. at 45 now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Nice so, increase. Um, so let's look. Hold, at hold, real, before you go to that, because I know I know you want to go to the to the crypto situation, but you said that you reported earnings. Now that seemed pretty quickly. Usually, companies report after an entire quarter. Did you guys even have a quarter before you reported earnings? Well, um. I think it's it's kind of on a it's it's on a there's a there's a range uh-huh. so because we went public near the end of the second quarter uh there was actually you know a relatively okay. short amount of time uh between sort of going public and then reporting the the second quarter it was like earnings. a small glimpse yeah okay so i think uh a lot of a lot of the information for that quarter was shared in the s1 so you know, there was uh, there was a, a little preview in there, but it was more just uh, the turnaround from kind of the IPO to the quick. to the earnings release, which takes preparation was was pretty short. Yeah. So let's talk about the future cryptocurrency. Um, when we think about cryptocurrency in America, Coinbase comes to mind. Well, you guys have some interesting news that you just recently um, released, as far as I believe a, a crypto wallet coming. Obviously, Dogecoin. Mm-hmm. 
is available on your platform. Um, it is, yes. <laughs> and became very, very popular a few months ago. Who's so, the dough trailer? Who's really the dough trailer? You know, I thought that this this dog room, I, I, I thought that that might have did something with Doge, but I understand that it was around before before the Dogecoin craze. Uh, I got a nominee that I'm thinking of. <laughs> yeah. Could be the Doge trailer. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> Who's the nominee? We'll talk about that after. <laughs> Does he have long hair? <laughs> Depends on who he's talking to. You never know. <laughs> you never know. So where, where where's Robinhood moving in the, in the cryptos? What's your plans for cryptocurrency? Well, so up until this year, uh, there was actually a relatively small team at Robinhood working on crypto. So we've been hiring a lot. And, you know, we announced two, uh, two new product features recently. So the crypto recurring investments and the crypto wallets, uh, which the wait list for the wallets launched last week. And then I think on the same day, we announced crypto recurring out to 100% of customers. Mm. So I think the the value that we add um, to crypto, the reason why people enjoy using Robinhood, it's kind of two things. One is the simplicity and kind of the the ease of use of the product. And then, of course, the fact that we're commission-free. So mm. we're actually very proud of... And we've been benchmarked a number of times by third parties. You know, you yeah. can see influencers that use multiple platforms and uh we compare very well people generally get more crypto for their for their money on Robinhood yeah. versus versus our platforms and those benchmarks so um yeah i think with wallets uh people have people want to consolidate so they they in some cases have crypto in a lot of platforms and want to bring it all in one and uh, some people also, you know, have their hardware wallets. They want to self-custody their crypto. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, they have their, their ledger nanos or, or other devices. And so we, we allow for the ability to do that. Or in some cases, participate in kind of these, uh, these DeFi ecosystems off-platform. So it'll unlock that. And then the crypto recurring, a lot of these other platforms, they're charging you multiple percent per transaction and with recurring that adds up even more right it's like three percent four percent every transaction now you're doing it on a weekly basis um, it can be very expensive and so robin hood uh recurring really leverages our commission free uh commission free value proposition because you can now recur without having to worry about about a significant commission uh every single time yeah as far as technology i feel like you guys have been ahead obviously you started at, as the app but i wonder how you feel about competitors are you watching what they're doing and saying oh we can add that i feel like that's what we saw in, in instagram like anytime there would be a social media site yeah instagram would say okay yep well thank you for creating that we'll do it better and so recently uh <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> um, uh, recently, uh, Coinbase said that they're allowing uh, customers to direct deposit their checks into their accounts and even have it convert into cryptocurrencies of their liking. What is that like? Because I feel like they're obviously going to be probably a main competitor in the U.S. market. Um, so how does that work with competition in this space? I mean, I think... Um and a lot of respect for for that company and Brian, great entrepreneur, great company. Um, I think again, our value proposition for customers is that we we want to offer you a great price. We want to be the best value for your money, and we want you to think of of 
when you think of Robinhood to automatically say, this is going to be the best customer experience and I'm going to get the, the best value. And, you know, I think that um, with the wallets launch, it's also important for us to uh, encourage our customers to practice good safety hygiene. So enabling things like multi-factor authentication, uh, enabling, you know, transaction monitoring uh, for where they're sending their cryptos. Um, And, you know, I think, uh, I I think if, if we can sort of own the, uh, the user experience and own the fact that we could be the, the best value for your crypto. Yeah. We feel we feel really, really good. And other than that, it's, of course, we'll pay attention to competitors and see if they happen to be serving customers in some ways better and learn from them. But largely, the North Star is always that direct customer feedback. So, you know, sitting with customers, going to their houses, bugging them, really annoying them until they, they tell us, uh, yeah. they tell us more and more about what's bothering them and how we can serve them better. I'm so, going to say this, not just because you're sitting here. Yeah. Like when we were starting our crypto journey, we, we downloaded Robinhood, not even for stocks, but it was for crypto just yeah. because the live ticker, it was like the little heartbeat and you could watch the price. It felt yeah. like it was like an eighties video game. I'm like, okay, this is more up to date. It was, it was a more of an accurate depiction of what was happening in the crypto space. Cause we know it was very volatile at a point. We weren't even going to sleep. It was like, we got to watch this. So it's very, yeah. it's very, it's very user friendly. Yeah. For sure. user friendly. For sure. Yeah. It's, it's meant to be fast for the interface to load quickly for you to get the information that you need, uh, as quickly as possible. And of course, when, if you do want to make a transaction for that transaction to be, to be smooth and for you to get a lot of value from it. So those are a lot of the design principles and really to, to meet people, to meet people where they are, they are and to align with kind of the spirit of, of crypto. So it is 24 Mm seven and you know, it's dynamic and sort of moving at all times. And, you know, I think the, the, the sort of, uh, retro future interface sort of affords affords yeah. that as well i think that's one of the things I, bloomberg had a piece on it uh i don't even heard the word of before they said it, the gamification of investing and it was almost like in a negative context it's almost like you guys have made it too easy what do you what do you say to that well i think it, it has been difficult for for a long time um i think i we reject the the sort of analogy of investing to a game we know right. investing is very very serious but at the same time you know it, it should be accessible to people. Uh, there's nothing wrong for people to enjoy right, investing right, right, right. or to have fun doing it, right? I think if people don't, they just wouldn't do it, and that's not good for yeah. for anyone. Old man sport, then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you know, we're all about accessible, intuitive design and making making the design better and making our customers happier. And I don't think that has anything to do with gamification. Your mission statement is democratize uh, investing. Um, and your Robin Hood, which the story of Robin Hood, you took from the rich and gave to the poor. Um, how are you staying true to that mission statement? And do you ever worry, like, you know, now obviously you're a publicly traded company and you're part of Wall Street where you was once like, you know, Wall Street's antagonist. Now you're part of Wall Street. So how do you feel about that? Like, how do you feel about staying true to your core mission statement? Well, we are still in Silicon Valley, so... Uh, um, I, I think, yes, we, we are a public company. We have shareholders, but, you know, I wrote in my letter that, you know, we're not a company that's going to 
sacrifice the long-term well-being of our customers to make our quarter or for for any other short-term gains. So it's a very long-term focused company. And there is a lens. um, So our top value I mentioned earlier is safety first. Our second value is participation is power. And so participation is power means at Robinhood, the rich don't get a better deal. So if you're if you're a normal customer, you don't get you don't get better customer support. You don't get higher quality service. You don't get lower prices the more money you have in your account. And uh, I think IPO access is a good example of that, because not only do we put retail customers on a level playing field with the institutions, but every customer, regardless of how much money they have or how valuable they are to Robinhood, gets um, an equal, an e- equivalent sort of odds and an equivalent shot to participating in in the IPO. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's ingrained in our values, and it's something we consider whenever we build products. And it's cultural in the sense that you know, if people do feel like we're encroaching on a decision that favors wealthier customers, rich people. Um, it, if it's like a, a non-participation is power decision, you'll see people advocating very fiercely against it and kind of rejecting it culturally. And I think it's one of those things that we're, we're very proud of as company builders, that it's sort of ingrained in the fabric of how we operate. I like that. Participation is power. We already say safety first. Safety first, first is that's, that's, that's been our model. model since day one. Yeah. That's our model. <laughs> yeah. Safety first, extremely important. Um, the best offense is a good defense. There you go. This guy's yeah. The best defense is a good offense too, though. This guy's yeah. good. Touche. Touche. <laughs> He's good. Vlad, it's, it's been an honor. Before we leave, I want you to have an opportunity to say anything that you would like to say. I, I would love for you to talk about the educational resources. Yeah. We, we talked about that briefly, but you guys definitely have a podcast, which is near and dear to our heart. And you have, I believe, courses on investing, right? And you like teach people about investing on the platform? Yeah, we have a couple of different uh, areas where you can learn about investing. So increasingly, we're finding uh, ways to put digestible content in the app. But we also have Robinhood Learn with the goal of um, taking you from kind of the basics of what is a stock, what is an ETF, all the way to more advanced options trading and and different strategies there. Um, and then uh, And then snacks as well. So you know, each of those things we're, we're making a lot of progress in. And, um, you know, recently uh, we, we partnered with Operation, uh, Operation Hope and became the, the sort of first broker to sign onto the Investor's Bill of Rights. And, you know, uh, standing up for in investor education, financial literacy is something very important for us. We'd like to see that taught at earlier and earlier ages it's too. Fu- it's funny you say that. Um, mm. I don't know if you if you know our background, but you know that's what we started in the classroom teaching financial literacy. Yeah, uh, Troy used to be a teacher, so we used to have a program where we actually taught financial literacy, and that kind of led to what we're doing now. But the classroom is always near and dear to our heart. So financial literacy is right up our alley, obviously. So it's great to see you guys doing that. If we could ever work together on that, that would be amazing, man. But absolutely, yeah, you know, in, sure. in fourth grade, I remember taking a financial literacy class and. You know, some of the lessons there, because they were so simple, stay with me to this day. Like, I remember they, they taught me, you know, it's basic things like when you're writing a check, start all the way on the left. That way, you know, nobody can take the check and put like one in front of the mm. number. And You know, it's, it's so crazy because I feel like in America. That was one of our lessons. De- de- yeah. Depending on what school you go to, depending on where you live, 
your experience is going to be vastly different. So you said you learned how to write a check in fourth grade. We were no. teaching, we were teaching 14 year olds, 15 year olds, um, financial literacy. And one of the lessons was we had a mock check and we were, we said, if anybody can write a check correctly, we're going to give them a hundred dollars. I'm like that. Chipotle, no, Chipotle for the whole table. For the whole yeah. table. Yeah. Like $50. Yeah. If you add it up. Long story short, nobody was able to do it. Wow. Nobody, not one person. Reason being is that they were never taught. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, you said you learned it in fourth grade, so and it stuck with you your whole life. Unfortunately, a lot of people were never taught not just how to write checks. They're mm-hmm. never taught about real estate. They're never taught about stocks. They're never taught about anything. Mm-hmm. So now they're just fumbling through life, making a ton of mistakes, but they were never taught financial literacy. It's still mind-boggling to me why financial literacy is not a core curriculum in every single school across the country. It's optional. More and more schools are starting to pick it up, but there's still a lot of schools where financial literacy is not taught. Financial literacy was never taught in any school that I went to my whole entire life, including college. One school. Well, the biggest. EYL University. <laughs> it's called the biggest. The biggest school. So, <laughs> so yeah, I say that to say that it's extremely important, the message of financial literacy, to not only be spread in the private sector, but in the public sector yeah. as well, and for schools mm-hmm. to start adapting financial literacy at a young age and make it mandatory. I feel like it's just as important as math and reading is is right up there amen couldn't agree more it's certainly been you know as a mathematician uh more practically useful in in some ways than uh any of the advanced math that i took in grad school yeah we've been saying that (laughs) i'm like (laughs) when am i going to use my pythagorean theorem yeah 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 (laughs) well um what would you like would you like to tell the people any anything else that we didn't cover that you want to let people aware of or any new developments? I know you got 24-7 customer service coming, so what's some final words you would like to leave the people with? Yeah, well, I think 24-7 customer service are um, is something incredibly important for us, uh, something that you know goes hand-in-hand hand with safety first, right? We have to make sure that we not only provide a high quality service that's available to customers when they need us the most, but that when they have issues, we're, we're there for them. So proud to be live uh, across all issue types um, with, uh, with customer support. And we're going to continue to, to go where our customers take us and, uh, and strive to deliver new products that are, that are aligned with, with our values and build the safest and most culturally relevant financial product in the world safety first ladies and gentlemen first Uh, lesson troy housekeeping items yeah i'd first like to say uh welcome to our newest eyl team member nora can we clap it up real quick yes Yes. and i also like to shout out all our earners on patreon.com you know it's our proud to pay program uh and all our people at eyl university our team is growing not just the students but the actual uh, staff, our, our family is growing. Um, so shout out to everybody. Shout out to over the 10,000 earners that are in EYL University. And shout out to the entire merch team, Bam, Smitty, the entire crew, man. Uh, you know, we're spoiling some new colors this year. It's, it's, it's that time of year to get the, the, the new season involved. So shout out to y'all. You know how we play this love is love. Yes. Yeah, so shout out to Nora. I know she's been working tirelessly with Mike to make this happen. And uh, thank you. And thank the whole Robin Hood staff for the hospitality. Very welcoming, um, beautiful campus. Very glad to hear. Zen. Yeah. Very zen. We got invited here. Yes. You can't, well, you just can't walk in. No, I'm just saying, <laughs> sometimes we got to, hey, yeah. they were like, we want to talk to you guys. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, thank you again for the hospitality. Yeah. Anytime. It's, it's been a pleasure. And um, we will see you guys next week. Later. <laughs>
You don't know who we know. Yeah. My graduates from my school being Forbes. Backdrop. Backdrop. <laughs> a mic drop. Backdrop. Backdrop. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. Saving money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options. In stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.